This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Zero. Did you miss the Zero Roadshow when it came to your city? What if I told you you could still attend a Zero Roadshow event? On June 4th, 5th, or 6th, you can attend the Zero Roadshow online. That's right, you can attend a Roadshow event via your web browser. At the Zero Roadshow online, you'll learn how your practice can benefit from the full power of the Zero platform and even earn CPE credit. To register for free, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.com forward slash zero roadshow. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.com forward slash X-E-R-O-R-O-A-D-S-H-O-W. And don't forget to register for ZeroCon. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Blake, we have to toast. Cheers, David. And cheers to all our listeners. We've hit 50,000 downloads. Which is pretty amazing because I think if I look back at like early shows, they had 78 downloads. Yes. <laughs> like not 78,000, like 78 downloads. Yep. Um, and three of those were probably me on every device we have and stuff like that. So it is a pretty amazing milestone. I think a lot of podcasts don't ever make it that far. I met somebody last night who he literally has three downloads of his podcast ever. And he's on episode 54. He just keeps chipping away at it. Uh, that is so some dedication it, there. <laughs> it, is, it does take dedication, you know? Yeah. It, it, I mean, you were, you were on, this was almost 50 episodes in before we got a little traction. It just takes time. It did take time. Yeah. But thank you everyone for sticking with us. And I think we found a format that people like. So let's, uh, well, let's read some reviews first, right? And then we'll get to the news. Yes, we got one new review. Do you want to go ahead and read that one? Here it is. Great podcast, informative and entertaining. Five stars. This podcast is great. Super informative. Blake and David do a great job covering the latest news in the accounting industry. Highly recommend for accounting professionals looking to keep up with the evolving profession. Nick Pascarosa, Bookkeeper 360. Thanks, Nick. I just realized this is a really good hack for people. If you want us to read your bookkeeping firm on air, write a review and type in your bookkeeping firm in the review, and then we say it out loud. Yeah, we have no choice. We're required to do so. It's yes, part of the rules. Yes, yes. So should we jump in the news? Yeah. So there's a lot. Uh, we've, of course, we've always got our recurring stories that we keep talking about, right? There's a free file. There's a little update on Walter's Kluwer and the CCH outage. Uh, what, else, what else do we got? Well, there's updates on QuickBooks Live yep. I got, and then we have the Intuit earnings yesterday. Yep. So then we can look back at those along with last week's zero earnings, and it's kind of fun to compare and contrast. And you've done a little digging because they aren't comparable. <laughs> we don't have breakdowns of different numbers for different regions, but you've kind of like reverse engineered these numbers to try and figure out how zero is doing in different areas versus Intuit and likewise. Lots of interesting news. I've got a fun fraud story, a timesheets story. Yeah, let's do Where do you want to start? Uh, why don't we start out with something very light? Okay, let's do that. All because right, so it is Friday before Memorial Day. On Twitter, there's a tweet from basically the high school newspapers. High school newspapers probably don't create newspapers anymore. They tweet about their students. And they put a tweet out with three of their accounting students who are now QuickBooks Online certified. I would call them cloud accountants. Wow. And it's super exciting like to that, you know, this is recognized by their high school newspaper. Mm -hmm. They're accomplishment. So congratulations to those three gentlemen. And, uh, you know, we give you a free subscription to the Cloud Accounting Podcast as a congratulations. And I suppose now they're uh, qualified to work for QuickBooks Live, right, David? Yes. Because you have to be QuickBooks certified to do that. That is correct. That is correct. Although I actually, if you look at the picture, David, uh-oh, we have a problem. The certificate says QuickBooks Pro slash Premier 2015. Oh, man. <laughs> 
Oh yeah. no, this is heartbreaking they're, now. They're desktop certified, David. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, sorry, sorry, buddy. All right. Well, I guess it's still news, and it's still kind of amazing. So, you know, they have a goal now to go get QuickBooks Online certified <laughs> this summer. Summer school. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. That was kind of a downer. I didn't expect that. I, but, I, I did not even notice the detail. Well, hey, oh, let, let's keep on this theme, right? Let's talk about okay. embezzling money and getting caught for it. I spotted a story in CPA Practice Advisor this past week. The headline is California man admits to embezzling $2.8 million and filing fake, fake tax returns. Caught my attention in particular because this guy, Sean Eden Talay, He's 62, and he uh, worked in uh, at a company in Burbank, which is not far from uh, where I am in Los Angeles. So fraud is not new. This is like the number one thing they like to cover on going concern. W- what struck me about this one in particular is the way he did it. He was the controller for a company called Printograph Inc., a commercial printing company. He was able to steal $2.8 million dollars over the course of about three years, it looks like less than three years, which is kind of incredible, right? How did he do this? Well, it wasn't uh, that he was like the typical thing where he was cutting checks to himself and just the business owners weren't weren't paying attention. I mean, like the, the normal way a bookkeeper would steal money from a company. Yeah, like the normal way is like, oh, they use the company credit card improperly for their own personal expenses or they're you know writing checks to themselves and then you know, manipulating the bank reconciliation of the records to hide that, right? Which is not very sophisticated, right? Easy to get caught eventually. Well, so Talei, he was a little more innovative. He would get tax payment checks signed off by the company's president. These were checks written out to the IRS. Nothing wrong with that, right? Like that's proper. He would mail in the checks to the IRS, but he would include his own taxpayer information on the IRS voucher forms. So the checks are coming from the company Printograph, going to the IRS. The IRS is receiving them and and crediting his personal like social security number. And then the IRS, because they're total idiots, sees that they, he has a credit on his account because he made an overpayment of his taxes. And then they cut him a check to refund him. And so he was basically using the IRS as a way to launder the money. <laughs> This is pure genius. And this really reminded me of that that other guy we talked about a while ago who got a million bucks from the IRS by basically just claiming um, prepayments that he never made. Yeah. And they, of course, they sent him the check without checking anything, you know, without doing an audit because their internal controls are so lax that they only check, they only manually check refund, uh, refund payments over $2 million or something. Well, there must be no internal control at the IRS around this. Yeah, so so these checks that get cut from the IRS don't actually ever reconcile back to like, here's the average amount of taxes, X social security number paid for the last five years, rolling average, or anything like that. It's just once it comes to the system, it I don't cut checks. I don't think there's any controls in place like artificial intelligence, human intelligence. It just seems to be an automated process. I mean, that's what it must be. I'm just making assumptions because how else could this have happened, right? Of course we don't know, but that's that's what it seems to be. Wouldn't surprise me. Here's the crazy part. This isn't the first time this guy has served time for an embezzlement scheme. In 2014, he was accused by the California Franchise Tax Board of embezzling about uh, half a million dollars from a Covina-based aerospace subcontractor where he was employed as a controller. And he served three years in prison. So somehow he got out of prison and then got another job as a controller and then managed to up his game. So I don't know. I just I thought the details of that were funny and, uh, well, you know, just at least interesting, if not funny. Well, to use the IRS to accomplish that is yeah the way the way he did it was clever. 
And the, the thing is that somebody probably did it for small amounts and hasn't been caught. Oh, yeah. Right? That's the probably. way these things usually work. Right? He, he, this guy probably got too greedy. And that's what always happens with these these types of things. But hopefully the IRS uh, modernization project that they, they now have funding for uh, will you know put some sort of like computer-assisted controls in place so that like this stuff gets reviewed, right? And this is the same IRS that like this will transition right into the next group of stories, right? The same IRS that some people are arguing should offer its own online tax filing service for people and just tell people how much they should pay. Yes. Like this is the same IRS we're talking about, right? Yes. The same IRS that has the free file deal with Intuit and H&R Block that uh, had deficient oversight of the program. So yeah, what the, so the latest news in the free file fiasco, as I like to call it, is uh, another article in ProPublica. They just keep them coming. This one was published on May 23rd. So yesterday it is headline, TurboTax uses a military discount to trick troops into paying to file their taxes. It's not anything new in that we already knew that the marketing folks at Intuit were using uh, some questionable tactics to suppress the true free file program that Intuit has partnered with the IRS to create and steer people into potentially paid products, right? Uh, but this article focuses on how they did that with military folks, military service members, by creating a TurboTax military landing page. Of course, there's lots of service members that make under the $66,000 annually that are supposed to be able to file for free. But if they went to this TurboTax military program, uh, that wasn't associated with the free file official free file program uh, with the IRS, and Intuit wasn't uh, telling them that they qualified if they did. So they would get upcharged for different services uh, and just another another way they did it. So it just keeps stacking up. And so I think ProPublica has now written in the last three weeks, four weeks, 10, 15 articles. And they keep, every time they peel back the end, they find something else, another example, another example. To some extent, they're kind of being that dead horse. But I think it completely tipped because yesterday, um, Senator Warren, who is running for president, Democratic uh are they nominees at this time or just a Democratic contender? They're just, there's like 40 of them, right? It's just, uh, yeah. Yeah, just a self-appointed, anointed um, candidate. Yes. And so she she wrote a letter to, um, I, I think it's addressed to son. I'm actually trying to relocate the PDF here. Yeah, it's it's a letter to Intuit and to Chief Executive Officer Sasan Ghadarzi asking him to respond to these reports and uh, listing out a bunch of, of questions which are actually, you know, pretty well written. You know, whoever put this together did a good job with the research, although they did rely extensively on the ProPublica reporting, which doesn't help, you know, doesn't help uh, ProPublica in the argument that um, Intuit is putting forth, which is that ProPublica is being political. But but I think it, it that was my takeaway when I looked at this, because she uh, has footnotes yeah. throughout the um, letter. And I think other than one reference to the IRS, all the other footnotes reference ProPublica articles. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. It, it, and, and she has an agenda, right? Like she has been pushing for tax reform and so she has an agenda. Plus she has that side agenda, which is the, hey, break up all the tech companies. Yeah. Right. And so I feel like her letter, it really plays right into, into its argument. It does. Yeah. And it's co-signed. We should say it's not just Elizabeth Warren. It's co-signed by Brad Sherman, who is my, uh, I think he's my congressman. Uh, Richard Blumenthal, Tim Ryan, Edward uh, Marker. Donald uh, Bayer and Corey A. Booker all co-signed this letter to Intuit. So this is officially an election issue. And we're going to talk about the Intuit earnings. 
on the Intuit earnings call, uh, I'm reading the transcript now, I just searched for free file through the transcript to see, you know, how many times is this mentioned uh, in the entire call? And it's mentioned once by Sasan Gudarzi up top. And then there was one question from an analyst about free file. That's it. The analyst just wanted to know, uh, it was a question about, you know, how many users uh, would have qualified for free file that, that ended up paying. And Gudarzi didn't really answer that question. There is that open question as to, you know, if any of these lawsuits go through uh, or are successful, which is doubtful, given how ambiguous the free file program was in the, in the language, let's say there is some sort of liability. I would want to know as an investor what Intuit might have to refund people for. Yeah. And I think one of the, the analyst questions regarding it was because the numbers were kind of interesting in the in the PDF results right, that they released. They kind of added up to like one point one million. Mm hmm were free. But Sasan made a comment, um, and it's in here that they're about, again, into its commitment to, uh, and I'll read it, our commitment to provide a robust free offering has resulted in more than 55 million TurboTax customers who have paid nothing to get their TurboTax experience over the last five years. So, right. so there, there's, there's some disconnect in the numbers. I mean, well, people are claiming only 3% of the people ever access the free uh, file allowance. TurboTax here into it's claiming 55 million have gotten TurboTax for free. Maybe it's not all through the free file line. That's but what it is. Yeah. They've gotten free TurboTax. So, so it includes, because you can get, you can file your taxes for free uh, through the non free file program. It, that includes both, right? Through, mm -hmm. both through the IR, official IRS free file program and the just TurboTax free, which is their own thing. Uh, well, here's what's interesting about this, because, you know, obviously they don't talk about it very much, but um, so free file has one question and approximately seven is referenced seven times in the transcript. And, if, and like five of those times it was uh, Godarzi. If you search TurboTax live, that has 39 references in the call. So if you're good with free file, I don't think there's that much other news to talk about. I, I really want to talk about like TurboTax live and and what that means potentially for QuickBooks live. I think I was guessing that TurboTax Live numbers were going to be huge, and they didn't actually release these outside of the conference call as far as like reporting on the TurboTax Live numbers. Yeah. But in the conference call, this is what was said, and it's pretty amazing numbers. After just two years, TurboTax Live is now a meaningful contributor to our business, and this product line is among the fastest ever to reach this revenue level. So pause and think about that for a second. TurboTax is now going on, what, 25 years old, mm -hmm. maybe longer? Right. And there's been many iterations of TurboTax they've built and sold over the years. This is the fastest ever. <laughs> right. So then, um, and I'll continue the call yeah. here. The number of customers using TurboTax Live more than tripled year over year. We estimate 70% of the customers were new to Intuit this season and used TurboTax Live, came from the assisted method the prior year. Yeah. Higher than TurboTax Online. So even. I want to stop you there because we, this mm -hmm. is something we talked about. Uh, when we first heard the TurboTax Live numbers, gosh, that was a while ago, right? Um, or we went back to the earnings call from last year and we dug them out. Yep. And so 70% of customers who are new to Intuit that are, and use TurboTax Live came from the assisted method. Assisted method is code for CPA firms, enrolled agents, tax preparers, shops. Yep. So so they're, they're, they're stealing most of those customers from the human-powered accounting and tax firms. And then it goes on to talk about the number of uh, 
2,000 pros that are on the platform. Um, they've improved the onboarding experience for the professionals, the technology, the tools. There's a lower attrition rate of the people providing the service now. And then they've just gained some operating efficiencies. So yep. they, they, they really uh, had basically the same amount of people to take on or the same amount of staff. If you want to think about it called staff, right? Or, yeah, or the staff. Pro advisors, yeah, sure. Staff to, to do 3x the number of customers get served. Yeah. And and then it's more revenue because I think it's almost three x the price to get TurboTax Live than it is regular TurboTax. Yeah, well, it, it depends on which forms you have, right? It could be, I think for me, if I did TurboTax Live, it's it was like two hundred dollars, and if I didn't, it would be like one hundred and twenty. Uh-huh. So it's a surcharge on top of whatever it would have been. Uh, but it's yeah, I think I paid an extra hundred bucks to get TurboTax yeah. Live. So, but really yeah. for the for the value you're getting, which is really peace of mind. It is not that expensive. And that's what they're selling. It's like an insurance policy almost. I can have somebody check over my work and know that, okay, I didn't miss anything big. But they've always sold that, right? You could buy audit protection. You could buy this. You 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 could buy a review. They never get the messaging right. TurboTax Live, hey, I get this video conference with somebody really quickly if I need to. That's what's changing the game. And that's the demand. They finally figure out what customers want, which is, hey, I want to just get on a video fast and ask 10 10 minutes a question. And it's not just a question about your return. If you pay for it, they are saying that you can ask year-round questions. So like if I have a question now after I've filed about my W-2 or something like that, I can do TurboTax Live. And they simply know that you know, only a fraction of people who pay are going to actually do that. Yep. So it works. And then this is why QuickBooks Live exists. Yeah. And this is, yeah, this is exactly, this is the only reason that QuickBooks Live is happening and happening so fast. So let's talk about the growth of QuickBooks Live. You've got some uh, intel, both from Intuit's uh, blog post about it and uh, Rich Priest was on a podcast talking yeah, about it, right? Yeah, so, so I think last week we talked about um, the new blog post that came out about QuickBooks Live with some details. Well, um, this week uh, on the QBO show, Rich Priest was a guest, and he was it was fast. He didn't have a lot of time. He was on for like 20 minutes. He just got in and got out. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was talking about basically giving an update on QuickBooks Live and gave a lot of details about it. I think some things that stood out for me just to kind of run through them. This will be marketed as a bookkeeping service. It's not going to be marketed as a setup service or this service. It will be marketed as bookkeeping. Um, There's hoping not to do this by like, hey, you get so many hours. They really want it to just be like this value prop for businesses, but they have to test into that. They're figuring that out because they have those people in Boise doing it, right? And for example, somebody took a four-hour video call with one client. (laughs) And so they're, they're... Obviously, Intuit's learning, and they're and they're going through this. Um, the, then you got to get into some interesting numbers. So right now, they have nine pro advisors doing this. Well, they have and they have two hundred. They have two hundred eight customers. So they oh, interesting. He gave them the customer numbers. I can't. Yeah, wow. So, so two hundred eight customers. But the bigger news is this is going live on June third. So again. So wait, wait. So it's about uh, what two hundred eight divided by nine. It's almost twenty to one. Yeah, twenty one, twenty two to one. Yeah, ratio. You know, it continues on with some more news. So uh, it's going live June third, which we talked about last week. You know, again with the promise they're not going to market it to your connected clients, and kind of almost gave a warning, like, "Hey, if you don't invite your clients to your QBOA, we don't know, right?" And people need to make sure they're connected. Their clients are connected, right? But that's when the numbers got really interesting. So over the next nine months, approximately, they're going to take on five hundred pro advisors. They're going to start by shifting the TurboTax live talent, and then they'll eventually ramp up more. So last week, it was they were adding forty more. Yes. So total fifty, like in June, it's going to be fifty, right? Yes. And you're saying that they're going to ten x that by the end of the year 
in nine months, did you say? Correct. Wow. Correct. 500. So if, if there... So the demand on this must be silly through the roof. Yeah. It must be silly through well, the roof. Well, and I imagine it is, right? Because it's a good deal. Uh, so if, if, if they have 500 pro advisors, let's just say each one has, I don't know, 25 customers. That's you know, 12,500 QuickBooks customers that are now on Q, QuickBooks Live. Paying 400 bucks a month. Paying 400 bucks a month. Which is 10x higher than their $40 subscription. And, and, and you really talked about, about how like, hey, we've learned from one month so far. We're going to have new learnings in month two and new learnings in month three. And then we're going to start, you know, starting to see patterns, what we can do, what we can't do. So we talked a lot about like all the learning that's going on. Your question keeps coming up. Uh, what's the compensation? What's the compensation? What's the compensation? He said he can't really comment on that. It's going to be a couple, few more months before they figure it out because they have to figure out what the usage and price point of the offering is. Well, I'll tell you this, though. If they are bringing people over from TurboTax Live, the compensation can't be that different. And I think we know that TurboTax from uh, from an article I spot. I mean, it's just one source, but a, a guy who applied for it and wrote about it, uh, Craig Smalley, uh, EA. He uh, he checked it out, and it was something like I don't know, fifteen to twenty bucks an hour. He went on to say that there could be different levels of services. Pretty confident there's probably going to be some level of a cleanup service. They'd have to, yeah. Yeah, so some level of just, hey, I'm going to pay to get my stuff cleaned up and then set on my way. Um, and really, the, the other shocking numbers that came out of this, so there's 400,000 pro advisors in the USA. Mm-hmm. In the US. Only 44,000 are certified in QBO. And so wait, wait, those say are the ones that again? are going prefer- only, only 44,000 are certified in QBO. Out of how many total? 400,000. Wow. I didn't know it was that low. It, it was even lower at one time because until they kind of forced people to re- become certified in order to get listed in the pro advisor site. Yeah. It was bad. Like, I think people have good intentions. People sign up for the pro advisor program, especially when they used to have to pay for it. Right. They'd sign up for the pro advisor program. They pay money for it and then never take the test. And it just you know, years go by and they never become uh, certified. And so, yeah, it's super low number, but those 44,000 are going to... Get first dibs at these QuickBooks Live customers. So we've been talking a lot in our circles, in our community of cloud accountants about the problem of QuickBooks Pro Advisors, QuickBooks Online Pro Advisors losing customers to QuickBooks Live. But it is now occurring to me that what is likely going to happen more than that is there are going to be QuickBooks desktop customers that Intuit markets QuickBooks Live to. And they're going to shift to QuickBooks Online with the QuickBooks Live service. And those QuickBooks desktop bookkeepers and accountants are going to be just caught totally flat-footed because they can't even compete with that. Well, or you look at the TurboTax Live information, which is, hey, 70%. a lot of the people buying TurboTax Live are brand new. Yeah. Like, like Intuit's bringing new opportunities to pro-advisors that maybe would have never been brought into the, and I'm going to use the word family, but, you know, to the QuickBooks world of family for all these pro-advisors. So this it's... The world's changing yeah. and there's a lot well, here. I, I mean, yeah, think about this. You're you're a small business. You don't have any accounting or you've always done it yourself in Excel or something like that or just giving your receipts to your accountant. And now Intuit is coming to you and saying, hey, for 400 bucks, we're going to sell you accounting software bundled with a bookkeeping service, 400 bucks a month. Oh, and it'll be a piece of cake to get your taxes done with TurboTax Live because I bet you they will have some sort of discount, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe they'll even end up bundling the tax it was part of the monthly fee at some point. I mean, that would make a lot of sense, right? I can see that. So then, yeah, then it just grows like crazy. 
And then they just have to, I think, long term have a plan for like, hey, eventually some small businesses are going to outgrow a QuickBooks live level service. Now, how do you route them to a proper QuickBooks pro advisor that can offer value add services and all the other stuff? Yep. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the only other piece of news that was kind of in this, and I think they talked about this before, but um, technology is in a box. They just ship out a kit. Yeah. Like if you're if you're if you get on TurboTax Live, you get a box, you get a laptop headset, you even get a background screen to put behind you, so it's a consistent experience for the end yep. user. Um, and then they don't want to do heavy marketing yet, so there's no Super Bowl ads, etc. Like this is just going to let grow organically. Except for I would argue, like if they put it on the homepage of QuickBooks.com on June third. I think that's pretty heavy marketing. That's a lot yeah, of eyeballs. They'll probably see that. Yeah, so huge, huge news on like what's happening with Cookbooks Live. It's going. It's amazing how fast it's going. And if anyone can do it, Intuit can. So we've been talking a lot about QuickBooks Live. We've been talking about Intuit earnings, but Zero also released their earnings. So David, you did the heavy lifting and dug into the numbers. Uh, can you give us some comparison, like? Where do the two titans stand? Yeah, so so side by side, and, and it's not easy to do because Zero has to release numbers. It's twice a mm-hmm. year, right? Yeah, so yeah, because Zero is based in New Zealand, they only have to do biannual uh, financial reporting, whereas Intuit has to do quarterly. And then, unfortunately, this is into its third quarter, not their fourth quarter, so it doesn't line up nicely with Zeros. You know, they're off by a quarter, which would make right. everybody's life easier if they just happen to both uh, have the same um, year end, fiscal year ends, but they don't. So, but they did release earnings and, and release subscription numbers. So, Zero last week announced their total subs was one point eight two million. So that's globally, right. the whole world. That's globally, and it grew that year four hundred thirty two thousand. Okay. Yep. which is pretty good. QuickBooks Online announced that their total subs now globally is 4.247 million, mm-hmm. which means they grew by 1.024 million. So, okay, got it. Which which is uh, like, so almost 2x mm-hmm. the growth. Um, pretty amazing. Um, Zero, then it gets in the regions, and this is where it's a little hard because Zero releases the region, num- release the region numbers. Mm-hmm. QuickBooks does but quickbooks the last time they did it was q4 of 2018 okay they didn't release the region numbers this year or i mean sorry this quarter but i can tell you what they released and i can tell you what my guess is to work okay, yeah. from that right so so us for zero is 195 000. um it's basically up 48 percent 195 total us plus canada right uh i'm sorry uh, the, Canada, okay. North America, yep. North America is 195,000. QBO US only is 3.1 million. Then UK, we don't have a direct number for QBO, but Zero's UK number is 463,000. And that's up 48% as well. Um, and then Australia, they're at 1.08 million. That's up 25%. And then up seven, and then uh, it's up 17% in New Zealand. So Australia and New Zealand. And then rest of the world is like about is eighty three thousand. Okay. So so that's how Zero gets their one point eight two million. So QuickBooks reported out that they have three point one million in just the U.S. and then one point one million in rest of the world. So working backwards, going back to the QBOs numbers from Q four of twenty eighteen, and then kind of projecting those growth rates out to now, and projecting out you know kind of using the zero numbers my guess is is probably the numbers if we side by side for the UK then i think that's the interesting one cuz i think that's the closest okay so as, like i said before zero in the UK is 463,000 my guess probably you know is that quickbooks is probably 442,000 so they're almost yeah almost neck and neck in the UK 
in the UK. Um, Australia, they're probably at 209,000. Rest of the world, they're probably at 103,000. Um, and then Canada's probably like maybe 286. Got it. So all of those added up, I'm coming in at like 1.04. I'm off by 60,000. So you could put those 60,000 in whatever country you think the other to get to Mm -hmm. that 1.1 million. Uh, Somebody on Twitter mentioned that it's probably the UK and that would be my guess as well. Like we're making tax digital and all the, there's just a big uh, transition happening from desktop to cloud happening in the UK right now. And that's probably where those other 60,000 are. But um, I asked on Twitter if Intuit had these numbers released and no responses as of yet. Zero has had a really tough time uh, in the United States, and Steve Vamos, the CEO of Zero, admitted as much recently in an interview. I don't know if you saw this, David. Did not. Let me did see not. if I can pull this up. While you're doing that, I did think it was interesting that, that Zero, even though they um, have dominated Australia, they still grew subscriptions 25% there. So this is uh, an interview that was published or an article that was published in Scoop Independent News to New Zealand site. Headline is Zero CEO says it still has a cautious future in the United States. And I think anybody who is familiar with Zero is rightly uh, frustrated with the growth rate in the United States. If you're a Zero partner, you want more Zero users that you can support. Uh, and it has been very slow going. Uh, for the U.S., even though the numbers increased by almost 50 percent, 195,000 subscribers is is just dwarfed by into its, what did you say it is, 3.1 million? 3.1 million. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I'm I'm really interested to talk to Tony Ward at ZeroCon. We got an interview booked with him, right, David? Very excited to speak to him about, you know, what are the plans for the United States? He's the new uh, president of Zero Americas. You know, are we going to see... Uh, uh, real push here. Looking at those numbers that you shared, Zero has to come after Intuit in, in its backyard if they want to uh, compete. Well, if you, if you want new customers, it sounds like you're going to have to launch Zero Live <laughs> because that's what brings in new eyeball. That's- and you have been uh, you have been saying that's inevitable. I don't I don't know if that's inevitable. I hope everybody doesn't do that because I don't know. Maybe it is. How do you not offer a competing service to QuickBooks Live? I, I don't know how as a from a business perspective, how Zero Sage, Accounting Suite, and all the other players that are out there don't try to do the same thing. Well, so Steve Vamos, head of Zero, was asked about Zero's future in the United States. And he said, if you combine us with them, meaning into it, it's still not anywhere near what you would call a mature market. Zero is bringing to the U.S. the same capabilities that have worked elsewhere. Quote, we just have to be patient about it, unquote. And then uh, he also said, there's nothing that leads me to believe that we can't build a good business in the U.S., unquote. But, quote, I'm absolutely not wanting to set expectations at unrealistic levels, unquote. I, I've been saying this for, for four or five years now. Like, if you take step back and look at cloud accounting in general, right? And before, in the QuickBooks, let's just go U.S., right? So the addressable market, let's just do easy math, right? was like 25% addressable market for small businesses. And QuickBooks Desktop was trying to convince people to like stop using pens and paper and all this. And at best, Intuit only got 5 million QuickBooks customers. Right. Like back in the day. It was a very hard sell. Well, now with QuickBooks Online and Zero, now, now cloud accounting is like a global sale. And the addressable market is realistically 35 to 40 million because people are already using cloud stuff. Of course, they're going to easily adopt a cloud accounting package, mm-hmm. right? Now, let's step back. Let's say history repeats itself. Intuit gets 90% market share again. Yeah. 
of this bigger pie, zero who lets who loses, they lose bad. They get second place, right? They get eight or ten percent of the market, right? Right? They, they get ten percent market. They're still bigger than QuickBooks Desktop ever was, right? By losing <laughs> this new cloud accounting race, so they're still a five billion dollar company or whatever. Exactly. Well, I guess that's that's good news. I just for me, I really hope that it doesn't end up being so lopsided because. The reason that online accounting has gotten so good in the United States is because Zero woke up the sleeping Intuit giant. I, and I love that Intuit is using a giant, a literal like robot giant in its advertising oh, because we've always called them the sleeping giant when it comes to online. And now QuickBooks Online is really good after five years of just crazy development. Yeah, the competition was good. Now, I know there's desktop people out there saying like, it's not good. It still doesn't have what it needs to have. Yes. Okay, whatever. But for, you know, the 90% of use cases, it works great. Um, yeah, so you said the magic word desktop. Should I kind of reference those numbers? Let's hear the desktop numbers. Uh, so, so desktop uh, sold two hundred fifty eight thousand units, and then QB desktop subscriptions are at four hundred six thousand. So they've they've grown. QuickBooks <laughs> desktop has grown. It won't die. That's okay. All right, that's enough on QuickBooks desktop for this week. Enough QuickBooks desktop for this week. Uh, cool. The only other number that was uh, pretty interesting um, is QuickBooks Capital has now funded $360 million in loans. That's a lot of money. That's like, the, uh, who, so what did Matt the, Path called it? The bank of Intuit on Twitter, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else is going on? Uh, no more Intuit news, no more zero news, uh, no more earnings, no more QuickBooks Live, or through all that stuff. We're through all that stuff. So, well, let's talk a little bit about Walter's Kluwer because we got to follow up on this, right? Oh, the hack. The, yeah. The... yeah, so the hack that the malware attack hack that took down CCH for almost a week. And it's kind of amazing to me how it just sort of went away. Walters Kluwer just kept the course, very little information coming out. They issued a press release, one press release saying that it's done. They have cleared up the malware and all of the apps are up and working. And as far as they can tell, no customer data was stolen. And that's it. Just short, a short press release there, but not explaining how this happened in the first place, what they plan to do about it or anything. Well, that's it. Are, are these malware attacks really about trying to get people's data and information? Are these malware attacks really about like, hey, I've just locked down all your systems and you can pay to get them unlocked. And that's kind of the game. The, the game. They're not really in it. They're just in it to like become a big headache well, and hold you hostage. You just pay to get. Yeah. So that's what's really interesting uh, is was this a one of those hacks where, yeah, it, it um, what do they call them? Ransomware. Ransomware. Was it a, was it a ransomware attack or was it the malware attack where they try to steal information like social security numbers and tax account numbers, all that stuff, right? So just speculating here, I wonder if it went away so quickly because they it was a ransomware attack and they paid the, the ransom. Is that possible? Or maybe they were just exercising an abundance of caution and it actually wasn't all that bad. But they're a public company. Won't they have to, when they release their earnings, to say like, oh, we had, we had this hit on our... Well, I, th- I don't know. I, I think there are rules about like if customer data is stolen, you have to notify people. Uh, so I guess that would happen if if... If it was, in fact, well, they're they're in um, in the EU. It's in Europe. So GDPR, right? Oh, GDPR. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. So maybe it wasn't that bad. But I do have you know a related story that shows just how lucky Walters Kluwer was. All right. Have you heard about the city of Baltimore recently and their their hacking woes? The city of Baltimore was the victim of a ransomware attack a little over two weeks ago. Ten thousand computers at the city of Baltimore were locked up due to ransomware. 
It's a malware that infects your computer and encrypts all your files with unbreakable encryption. And then the hackers demand that you pay them in cryptocurrency, which is untraceable, uh, in order to unlock your systems and decrypt your files. So city of Baltimore had old systems that were not secured properly. The ransomware got in, locked down something like 13 different systems in the city of Baltimore. Crazy disruption. A great an example is it... it seized up their uh, property records. So you couldn't, you can't, you haven't been able to buy or sell a house for two weeks. So if you were like in escrow uh, or trying to purchase or sell a home, uh, you couldn't do anything. And they just after two weeks um, put in a paper-based system to deal with it. But the big thing is that Baltimore, the city of Baltimore is refusing to pay the, the uh, ransom. So they are going to basically have to dump those computers, restore the data and completely rebuild their systems. Yeah, and, and I think we uh, in April may even mentioned this. Um, Atlanta uh, had a ransomware attack. Yeah, a bunch so of they, cities have, have had these, and hospitals have been the victims. And in Atlanta, this is a, I just found an, an article that's somewhat newer, but Atlanta spent two point six million dollars to recover from a fifty two thousand dollar ransomware scare. Yeah, and this so, so somebody demanded fifty grand, and they had to spend two point six million to recover from this. Yeah, and the ransom uh, for context. Uh, that is being demanded or was being demanded from the city of Baltimore uh, is equivalent is 13 bitcoins, which is equivalent to about a hundred thousand US dollars. So they're refusing to pay the ransom with, under by principle, uh, but it's going to cost them millions of dollars as a result. And what's crazy about this is this is Baltimore's second ransomware attack in 15 months. Last year, a different attack shut down their <laughs> 911 system for an entire day, and they didn't learn from that apparently. So uh, I bring this up. Because this is a problem that affects cities right now that has been affecting municipalities. But there's no reason why your accounting firm, if you're using desktop systems that are not secured properly, couldn't also be the victim of a ransomware attack. And there have been some accounting firms that have had terrible things happen as a result. And I think a lot of times we don't even hear about it because the firms uh, don't want to publicize it. And they just pay the they pay the ransom. Yeah, I mean, knock on wood, I have not had a ransom attack on my computer. But I, I guess for me, in the back of my head is like, okay, what if I pay it and then they don't unlock it? Yeah, like, that could happen. It does like, happen. Yeah. yeah, you know, like this is the this is the argument for using more cloud applications is that uh, if you are using cloud tools, then theoretically you are less likely to be the victim of a ransomware attack because it's much harder to secure your own network than for a large company to secure its network, although the whole Walters Kluwer thing now makes me doubt that argument in some respect. But that was like a hybrid hosting kind of... Yeah, so, I mean, we don't know exactly, yeah. but the, the idea is that Walters Kluwer was uh, using hosted applications, which are can also be hacked in the way that ransomware can affect you on your local computer too. So what you really want is you want true SaaS uh, web applications that can't get uh, ransomed in that that way. I mean, they could, but it'd be very difficult. It would be one app you use in your tech, tech stack, yeah. not every single, your whole computer system. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. I guess I would probably, because I, I, I think I'm fully cloud now. I have no desktop anything anymore. And I guess I would just format my computer, reinstall Windows and log in and put Firefox back on and be up and going. I, I have a feeling that we're going to be hearing about a lot more ransomware attacks in the future, especially on accounting firms, or even if we don't hear about them, it's pretty much a guarantee they will happen. And you know how I know that? Uh, because a survey, a survey that says that 59% of accounting firms are still delivering client invoices on paper. You heard me correctly. 
59% are delivering invoices to their customers by paper. Only 41% send electronic invoices. And this goes back to, I think, what we talked about two weeks ago, where like 30% of the accountants and bookkeepers that are out there are crushing it compared to the other 70%. Yep. And this is a perfect example of that. If basically 60, 70% are still mailing paper invoices to their clients, they're not doing EFT payments, they're not uh, doing pre uh, pay-ahead billing, they're not doing anything. Yeah. They're, they're sending old, like they're doing it the, the old way. And then, of course, they're not using Cloud Account or any other technology. And it <laughs> explains why that other survey, uh, I think last week, where people were like, I'm not happy with my job because I don't have any text. There's no technology advantages. That's why I'm just a number cruncher still. Yeah, it it all reconciles out. This all makes sense. Like 70% of all firms are not great. Yeah, I would say quarter to 30% of firms are really innovating and moving to modern tech and um, reevaluating processes and ways of doing business. And the other ones are just kind of business as usual. And I feel safe saying that because none of those 70% are listening. So (laughs) I don't have anything to worry about. We can trash them all we want. So speaking of election issues, mm-hmm. right, obviously Free File Alliance, remember we've been talking, there's been a trend here in this whole cashless argument. Yes. Cashless stores. Is it okay? Is it not okay? Well, Square launched, they spun up their whole, they have a whole blog marketing page called Making Change, Payments, Perspectives, and Politics. And this is definitely a PR play all about them presenting, hey, both sides of the story of, you know, some places will never go 100% um, cashless. Here's uh, reasons other people are going to um, go cashless. And mm-hmm. so they're, they're preparing themselves for, uh, for a political stance on this. Um, so it's worth checking out. It's hard to read, though, from a – they highlight a bunch of things in orange. So you only focus on those. You don't read the rest of the words. It's kind of weird, their website. But it's worth checking out because they are stacking – they're making a political play here because they know this is in the, coming in the election for sure. Yeah, and some of the stats are really interesting in this data. Between 2015 and 2019, the percentage of consumers who use cash on transactions under $20 dropped from 46% to 37%. So that's a pretty significant shift. Research found, though, that 83% of retail merchants said they will always accept cash. So maybe this is overblown, you know, this whole like trend toward cashless. Although when I was in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, I did see more than one uh, cashless store as I was walking around Russian Hill. But again, that is a <laughs> very uh, bubble-like environment. We were, we were um, in New Orleans for the accounting salon last week or 10 days ago, two weeks ago, 14 days ago now, right? Uh, Cafe du Monde. That's how you say it? I think so. Cash only. If you want to get your beignets and your coffee, cash only. That place has been open for 100 years, cash only. <laughs> and they That's will it. be open for another 100 years because they are an institution. And I mean, if they're not using credit or e-payments now, they'll probably still be cash only forever. Like If, if you haven't gotten a cash by now or credit cards by now, why would you switch? Right. Hey, I've got um, I've got a timesheets story and i've got a blockchain story which one do you want to hear timesheets versus blockchain oh do you have a story that's like how blockchain is going to solve timesheets uh, well i'll go to the blockchain <laughs> one first then because okay 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 i subscribe to an email called the deloitte controllership digest it is a really riveting email that comes out of deloitte uh every month they do one really cool thing which is they do a monthly survey the questions go out in the email and then in the next email you get to see the results last month they asked the readers, has your organization explored practical applications for blockchain within the controllership function? The result, 0% are actively researching blockchain 
or currently implementing it in controllership. Nobody is doing blockchain. And it made me feel really good to see that stat because I have been saying for a little while now that I think that blockchain and accounting is total crap right now. There are no good applications for it and it's not going to eliminate our jobs. And why are we talking about it so much? And so this sort of, these are just general firms that Deloitte surveyed or is this like kind of Deloitte's? Um... Well, it's, it's all the readers. It's it's all the readers. Oh, the readers of the, it's the readers of their controllership digest. And of course, we don't know who the readers are, but we can probably assume it's mostly accountants, right? And controllers. And just odds would be like one person might raise their hand and say, I'm using blockchain, but zero. Yeah, well, and it's, you know, it's not all negative. Um, let's see, uh, uh, 4% of the readers or respondents, I should say, have identified use cases for blockchain. Uh, but they haven't started any projects. So 4% identified use cases. Another 4% uh, did did explore it, but don't think there are any viable use cases within controllership. And, you know, controllership, we mean, you know, the oversight of the uh, financial close and uh, reporting process. So, uh, and I think that makes sense, right? Like all the applications for blockchain that I have seen so far have to do with uh, uh, money transfers at this point, or potentially tracking property records or whatnot. These are not, this is not, oh, we're going to have our general ledger on the blockchain. I don't think that's going to happen. Not anytime soon. It may be internal things, possibly, but yeah. you're All right. you blockchain skeptics, you are, you are correct. Uh, and so do you want me to move on to timesheets? I got a timesheet story here. Time I want to hit this before we go. Exciting. So this is a good one. Um, so I talked about Baltimore, Baltimore being dumb. And we talked about the IRS being dumb. Well, now let's talk about the MTA being dumb. This is a story in the New York Times. Headline says it all. $461,646 in pay for one worker. MTA overtime scrutinized by prosecutors. Uh, that did not surprise me because, right, we, we see cases of fraud and, and all sorts of abuse in government all the time. No big surprise there, especially when it comes to transit authorities. But how this happened has something to do with uh, accounting technology. Apparently, handwritten bookkeeping is still in use at the Long Island Railroad. And because workers are allowed to submit paper timesheets with apparently little or no verification of the hours worked, employees have been claiming ridiculous amounts of overtime. One worker at the Long Island Railroad said that he logged 74 hours of overtime every week atop his regular duty. And that's how he made $460,000 in one year. More than the combined salaries of Governor Andrew Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio. So every week he did this. 40 hours a week plus 74 hours of overtime. So he's claiming like 114 hours of work a week. Is that even possible? So do they just have like an automated payroll system that just takes his data and pumps out paychecks or some manual person getting this timesheet and then putting in a payroll system and be like, that doesn't seem weird. Then somebody else next week, that doesn't seem weird. Like it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. That's like crazy, crazy numbers. Actually, I'm more amazed by this guy than the IRS guy. Well, it gets gets better, David. So Uh, you always say that it gets gets better. better. Yeah. So modern machines, Modern a modern timekeeping system that actually uses biometrics. Uh, I think it says thumbprints was installed five years ago. The Long Island Railroad installed about 120 biometric clocks, which would require employees to sign in with their thumbprints at the start and end of shifts. 
hey, that sounds modern, right? That sounds like something like T-sheets or whatever, right? And somebody made an attempt to implement that to prevent fraudulent timesheets, probably. No, they did implement it, and uh, but the union workers were allowed to be exempt from having to use this new system and were allowed to continue using the paper timekeeping system. According to the article, management feared that insisting on the use of the automated clocks would, quote, have an adverse impact on employee productivity, unquote. According to an internal memo by the transit agency's inspector general, which was described to the Times. So I've seen some other articles and bubbling about this, and maybe this is going to be a theme we're going to see more of is there's this battle happening between like these timesheet apps because they're optimizing and, and squeezing employees and you're getting squeezed for the exact amount of time. Now, the unions and other people are pushing back on these systems saying that, that it's exploiting the employees and all this other stuff. So this could actually start bubbling up as well as the year goes on. But this is obviously, I mean, there is a balance to be struck. And, and I, I remember this story. We talked about a story a while back. Uh, it, was, it had to do with hospital workers, I think, where the timekeeping system was programmed in such a way that it was stealing time from them because it was rounding yes. down to the yes, quarter hour. It. And so they were claiming that they were, they were losing time that they were getting paid for. And, you know, so there is a balancing act that has to be struck between the technology and the employees. But this is one of those edge cases where it's completely, completely ridiculous to install biometric clocks that would verify that people were there and working and to stick with your handwritten timekeeping system uh, just to keep the union employees happy. Like something is really, really wrong with management in that organization. And it doesn't surprise me given that it's MTA. Uh, and I don't live in, um, you know, I don't live there, but I know how how ridiculous uh, the California high-speed rail project has been and wasteful. So if it's anything like that, then uh, this this is this is par for the course. So so if it was me and I wanted to commit some crimes, yeah, doing ransomware at 50 grand a piece is not the way to go. You just need to get a job somewhere and you can turn in fake timesheets and pull down a half a million bucks. <laughs> like that's the way to get do. a union job, a place with lax internal controls. Or uh, what was the other takeaway? Oh, yeah. Uh, utilize the IRS's uh, lack of internal control to help them launder money from your employer. That is, that's the takeaway for this week, apparently. Wow. These are fun <laughs> times. So I have some uh, quick app uh, updates we can plow through quickly if you want. Yeah, sure. What's new with apps? Yeah. Right, yeah. So uh, Bill.com launched, they're calling it their Intelligent Virtual Assistant. Um, it's a fancy word for essentially OCR. So what, what Bill.com is doing now, they, uh, they've learned from, I want to quote the article, 50 million, 52 million bills and invoices that they've handled over the past mm -hmm. year. So what they're doing is they're automatically doing data capture. And it's, it's simple, right? They're capturing the vendor name, the date, the amount. They're not doing line items. They're not doing any of the fancy stuff products like AutoMentry can do, right? There's no rules. They don't even separate pages. So if you, if you send two, a bill that's two pages long, Bill.com can't handle it at this point, right? Okay. But what they're doing is they're able to apply the Bill.com feature and functionality more intelligently. So you might be able to upload 20 bills and maybe all the bills that are under $100, you want Bill.com to automatically pay. Oh. All bills between this other range, you want to route to this special VP who's going to sign those bills or approve those bills, right? So, so they're adding really in logic on top of their OCR service. That's really cool. Right? So, so the OCR services is not the, I don't think is the the wow here. Right. Um, actually, what, a little bit of wow, because I think in a way, like you never got free OCR service part of Bill.com. No. So that's kind of in there for free now. But the wow is the routing that's going to take place once it reads it. 
And it'll de- detect things, which it should by default, like, hey, this has already been paid or it's a, uh, a duplicate, you know, things like that. But the routing is going to be interesting because you'll, you'll be able to set up rules, right? And it'll start routing these things accordingly as they come in through your... I don't know if Bill, if Bill.com calls it an inbox, but, you know, an inbox of bills coming in. Yeah, they have an inbox, yeah. One of the points in the article is that the machine learning is going to try and predict how to route. So you, you won't have to create... Because you can currently do that. You can create rules that... Um, Invoices over a particular amount have to be approved by this this person. But the idea is you don't have to create all those rules. It will figure it out, right? And some sort of risk assessment, et cetera. So, so obviously, this is the first iteration. It'll grow and then continue on from there. But as, as far as like, if you need a bunch of extra details, yeah. like, like the, and their, their concern is getting that bill paid properly and not paid more than once, right? And approved properly. But if you need other information from that bill back into your accounting system for job costing, classes, et cetera, you're going to have to use a third, uh, different product mm-hmm. right, to, to, to move that in. And auto entry is a good example, right? You could do all the auto entry, then auto entry will send it to bill.com and then that'll trigger all the bill processes in bill.com. So you, you could still use another thing. Um, another quick announcement, Plaid. So Plaid, we've talked about before. Plaid essentially, uh, almost everybody's probably used Plaid, but doesn't know they're using Plaid. Many times when you're connecting a bank account or a bank feed in a product, um, outside of QuickBooks, there are a lot of apps now are using Plaid to do that. Mm-hmm. And so Plaid has now created a product called Plaid Direct. And it's to make it easier for banks and um, fintech companies to become a data source in the Plaid network. But there's a little piece of that blog post, which I found was interesting. And essentially... It, it slightly indicates that, hey, if I have an app and the customer is now connected three bank accounts through Plaid in my app, mm-hmm. that I can actually use some sort of service now to so customers can transfer money from one bank account to the other. Hmm. And it goes in through Plaid. So that's going to, it's just another uh, connectivity way for instant payments, right? And instant moving of money. And then like, hey, I don't have enough of my payroll account. Oh, great. I can quickly transfer that in. I don't have to leave, go to the bank's website, go to some other service to transfer that money. I can do it right from inside the payroll app if I have both accounts connected. Got it. That's interesting. Um, TransferWise, which is for uh, transferring international money transfers, they just took another $292 million uh, round, uh, giving an evaluation of $3.5 billion. So they are now the biggest fintech play in Europe. So they're a big, big, huge play there. Um, and then an acquisition, which I thought was interesting. Shopify acquired uh, Handshake. So Handshake, have you ever heard of them? No, that's new to me. So it's kind of an inventory play, but what they really were was a play so for wholesalers. So if I have inventory and I need to sell that to other brands like um, Mason Jars or something that I want to sell to Sonoma, William Sonoma, right? Or some some brand. A lot of times in the past, you'd have to like go through these other services and these brokers to get those to those um, vendors, right? But now with Handshake, they would uh, basically make that Handshake for you and you track your inventory as a SaaS app and you track it through there. Well, Shopify, which essentially used to just be e-commerce shopping carts, is now acquired Handshake and they're really looking to become, Shopify is looking to become that full end-to-end business uh, e-commerce solution. Really going after that space, Amazon's in and uh, eBay's in and some of these other bigger companies. So they just quietly acquired a company. They they, they didn't say the uh, amount, but the source says it was less than 100 million. Cool. That acquisition. Yeah, I think that's it for App News this week. Well, this was a big episode. If we've got any listeners still with us, David, <laughs> Where would they go to contact us and tell us what they think? So the easiest way is to get a hold of us on Twitter. I am at Blake T. Oliver. And I'm David Leary. So it's just at David Leary on Twitter. 
Uh, we also have all our socials. So we got the Facebooks and the LinkedIn's and on Twitter, you can find cloud accounting podcasts yeah. on any of those and contact us that way for any of the, if you're listening and you're interested in sponsor, interested in sponsoring the cloud accounting podcast, um, starting June 21st until October 4th, those weeks are available. And then starting again, January 10th of 2020. And we also have, you know, with the conference season coming up, we have some conference special sponsorship opportunities if anybody's interested. Uh, for example, the week of June 16th, we'll be doing four crossover conference episodes uh, covering Scaling New Heights and ZeroCon at the same time because those, those events overlap. So if anybody's interested in that, hit the show notes and there's a link to it for more information on that. And David, you will be at Scaling New Heights. I will be at ZeroCon. You will be joining me at ZeroCon. Any other conferences you're going to be at? Um, I'm kicking around the idea of doing uh, Account Tech USA. Cool. Kicking that around a little bit. Obviously, I'll be at QuickBooks Connect. I'll be at uh, AICPA Engage in June in Las Vegas. That's coming up. I, I've always liked the Midwest one in Chicago, um, the Illinois CPA one. And I've always liked going to that conference. I don't know if I'll be attending that one or not. But yeah, for sure right now, though, locked in and plane tickets are bought, right? Is for sure Scaling New Heights and ZeroCon that week. That should be a fun week. If you're a listener and you're going to be at any of those conferences, do be sure to uh, tweet at us or connect on LinkedIn. Send us a message because I always love to uh, meet listeners in person. It's great. Well, it makes it real, right? Because sometimes I feel like we're just talking to each other. And so when somebody comes up and says, (laughs) oh, I like listening or I listen to this, it just feels good. It's cool to know people are listening. Come get a Cloud Accounting Podcast sticker for your laptop or your bag or wherever you want to stick it. That's all I've got, David. Until next week. Have a good one. You too. Everybody enjoy their uh, weekend. Bye, everybody.